Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard The king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country. Another way... Remember the reoccurring theme of Matthew's gospel. The purpose of Matthew's gospel is to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. But as Matthew records the events surrounding the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, we will see that the Jews will, for the most part, reject their king. As a nation, they will affirm John chapter 19, verse 15, where it says, We have no king but Caesar, and we won't have this man to rule over us. The genealogy proved that Jesus is the son of David. He has the king's credentials. But we also discovered that Jesus is qualified to be king both by paternity, birth, And prophecy, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the king is born under supernatural circumstances. His birth is a virgin birth. But does anyone else affirm that Jesus is the king? Will the Gentiles recognize Jesus' claim to be the king of the Jews? Matthew now tells us an extraordinary entourage of important people who show up from the east who recognize his right to rule. And who are these mysterious men known as the Magi? Where did they come from? How did they know about Jesus? Why would God allow them to to 
to reveal to them that Jesus is in fact the king. Whatever else it means, it must mean that God intends that the Gentiles will worship the king. And so in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The first chapter gives us our cast of characters. The wise men from the east, a wicked man from the west, a child from Bethlehem who's worthy to be worshipped. And every section, again, remember, every section of Matthew's gospel begs the question, if Jesus is the king, should he be my king? Does he deserve to be the king in my life? And when I was preparing, preparing this message, thinking about my life, thinking about my mother's death, thinking about my grandson's birth, and today, by the way, is my son Jonathan's birthday. And you know, when a a baby's born, we'd like to think that it's the most important day in, in the universe. And when we would read this story from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 on Christmas to our children, one day little Jonathan, now he's big Jonathan, but when he was a very little boy, he came to me and he said, Dad, in heaven will I have to kiss Jesus' feet? And I thought about what he's saying. And I said, Jonathan, if that's what he wants. But I believe Jonathan was really asking, does Jesus deserve to be worshipped? And, and in heaven, you know, do I have to kiss his feet? Is that going to be a little bit awkward? Is that going to be a little bit uncomfortable? I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to be the king, but is he going to be a king who's going to make me do awkward things and uncomfortable things in this life? (laughs) When my dad would hear about this story, he would say, Gino, tell me about the wise guys. I go, Dad, they're the wise men, not the wise guys. And the Bible calls them wise men because it comes from a root word, magi. Um, From the east, literally from the place where the sun comes up. And some scholars believe that these are the descendants of Daniel's school in Babylon. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Daniel, remember that the magi were high-ranking officials in the court of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 48. And and you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar in in Babylon, this is Babylon, the city that was famous for false doctrine and false gods and and opposition to the true God of the Bible and that Daniel was appointed to be the ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the mad joy the mad that's the wise men 
But those of you, again, who are familiar with Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, remember that, that the reason why Daniel becomes the prefect or the ruler over these men is because of the remarkable dream that takes place in Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and, and as he has this dream, it's a, it's a dream of the unfolding of the kingdoms of, of humanity, and as, as Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, it troubles him to such an extent that he calls all the wise men together and he says... I've had this amazing, disturbing dream, and I want you to tell me what it means. And the wise, wise men said, sure, king, tell us the, the dream, and we'll tell you its meaning. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, you'll tell me what I dreamt, and you'll also tell me what it means. And they said, forgive us, king, may you live forever. But no one has ever asked anyone of that. No, no one would ever, ever say to someone, uh, tell me the meaning of a dream and also tell me the dream. And I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You're going to tell me what the dream is. And you're going to tell me what it means. And they said, that can't be done. It's impossible. And so he said, okay, then I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill your wife, and I'm going to kill your children. I'm going to kill your neighbors, and I'm going to kill your friends, and I'm going to burn your property. And as you can imagine, the wise men panic. Because who would make such an impossible request? And how do you come up with such a solution? And you'll remember that when the executioner came to Daniel... Daniel said, could you just give me a few moments and I'm going to pray that God will reveal to me exactly what the king wants. And he and his friends began to pray. And as they began to pray, Daniel received a message from God that the king's dream was about a gigantic statue that was standing in the middle of a plain with a head of gold and with, with shoulders of silver and, and with a torso of bronze and with legs of iron. And he saw a stone come out of the sky and smash the, the statue into nothingness. And so Daniel came before the king. Having never heard anything about the dream, he began to say, this is your dream. And he began to unfold the dream. And the dream, he said, your dream, O king, is, is a dream about the unfolding of the kingdoms and what life is going to be like and what the future holds for all of humanity. And you, the king of Babylon, are the head of gold and, and the Medes and the Persians are going to be that, that chest of silver and the Greeks are going to be the stomach of bronze and the Romans are going to be the, the legs of iron. And, and he gets gets a glimpse, the king gets a glimpse into all of human history that's going to lead to an ultimate king, a, a final king, a king who's going to come from heaven. And because Daniel had insight into the things of God and communicated what was about to take place, apparently that these records had been kept intact and and they, they began to, to think about what Daniel had written and how the king of Babylon collapsed and the Medes and the Persians came into the, to, to, to rule and then the Greeks came and then the Romans came and all of a sudden it looked like the time was ripe for the arrival of the king. And so in verse 2 it says, Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? 
And it may just seem like a simple question to you, but I want to draw your attention to the fact that this is the first question written in the Greek New Testament. This is number one. Where is he who is to be born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. By the way, in the gospels, in the epistles, we're we're going to soon find new answers to the question. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? We're going to eventually find him on a cross in John chapter 19, verse 17. And then we're going to find him on a throne in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. And then we're going to find him in human hearts in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Where is the king? He's going to eventually be on a cross and he's going to eventually be on a throne and he's going to eventually be in the hearts of people who accept him by faith. There's lots of opinions about the star. Was it a celestial body? Was it a meteorite? Was it a comet? They followed the star. They saw a star and they followed it. And again, lots and lots of questions, speculations, and endless discussions have arisen about what was this star. Whatever it was, they believed that it would bring them to the king of the Jews. And this king would be appointed by divine right. And this causes no end of aggravation. For Bible teachers and Bible scholars. Because Bible teachers and Bible scholars are somewhat frustrated that God would use the object of pagan idolatry to bring these people to the place where God wanted them to be. And there are myths and legends that surround who these men may have been. In the Middle Ages, they became known as Kings, and according to tradition, they were Gaspar and Melchior and Balthazar. They were thought to represent the sons of Noah. And so there was this, this tradition that arose that these three kings represented the descendants of Ham and Shem and Japheth. And one of them is pictured as an Ethiopian. And in the church in Europe, in Cologne, they claim to have the skeletal remains of one of the original three kings. The only thing we know for sure is that the text doesn't tell us that there were one king or three kings or 30 kings or 300 We're not told how many there were, but this is what we are told, that they are sufficient in number and power and authority and legitimacy. And this becomes an important thing for you to understand. They have legitimate credentials in what way? Whatever their legitimate credentials are, it causes Jerusalem to shake and it causes Herod to become deeply, deeply concerned. By the way, that's what the text says. The Magi appear in history in about the 7th century BC. They're from the eastern provinces of Mesopotamia. It's where Iraq and Iran join in their border. Doesn't it seem interesting to you that there's this never-ceasing conflict, this unending supernatural struggle that's taking place over there? Some believe that they were part of a group that were related to Abraham. 
The name magi, like I said, is a word where we get our own word magic from it. Most scholars believe that it was a Persian hereditary priesthood. They were skilled in astronomy, the laws of celestial mechanics and astrology, the belief that heavenly bodies determined human circumstances. They were skilled in the occult and in sorcery and in divination and dream interpretation. And I want you to think about that for just a minute because these men whose lives were preoccupied with stars and dreams, God will use a star and dreams to lead them and guide them. According to many scholars, no one could ascend a Middle Eastern throne or maintain that throne without their permission. And so these people aren't just simply magi. These are king makers with the profound belief that God has sent a king. John MacArthur writes, historians tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the magi and then being approved and crowned by them and that this group law also largely controlled judicial appointments and so when they show up and they ask the question where is the king of the Jews and Herod's going wait a minute I'm I'm the king of the Jews is this some sort of sinister plot is this some sort of threat Is this their way of saying, we're going to replace you with somebody else? And I think it's interesting that the star doesn't lead them to the Savior. It first of all leads them to Jerusalem. And when they wind up in Jerusalem, Jerusalem leads them to the scriptures. And then the scriptures lead them to Bethlehem and to Christ. And we live in a world, a material world, a world of nature where people look around and we ask questions about existence and we ask questions about reality. Why are we here? How did the universe come into existence? Why are there stars? What are they made of? How far do they stretch out? Who made the universe? Why do we exist? I have friends who prior to coming to Christ would have self-identified as atheists and some would have identified as mystics and some would have identified themselves as philosophical naturalists and some would have identified themselves with, as naturalists or scientists. And it's interesting to me how many people come to Christ by way of false religion. Or science. I have a friend who wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but he went to school and he got an an earned medical degree. After going through high school and college and medical school, and he finishes medical school and, and he starts practicing medicine, and he all of a sudden realizes that he despises sick people. He hates being around people who are ill. I go, man, bummer for you. And then he decides that he is going to get an earned PhD in pathology because he loves dead tissue. Cadavers are wonderful. Dead tissue are exciting. 
But as he explores the worlds of biology and and the amazing um, reality of the cell, he begins to see in the world in which he lives design and a reoccurring testimony of how did the world become the way that it is and how does inorganic material become organic and how does organic matter become animated and how does animated matter become conscious and he realizes that it was all way too complex to just suddenly disappear and his evolutionary construct collapsed under the weight of its own stupidity and he realized that the only thing that made sense was Christianity. And you see, this might disturb you, but let me ask you a question. What led you to Christ? How did you come to Christ? What was it that you were doing or listening to? The magi were led to us by a star, the fishermen by a fish. Remember, Jesus said, Follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. They left their nets and they followed him. God can use sports. He can can use music, airplanes, motorcycles, hobbies, interests, religious curiosity. There's all kinds of things that people find themselves interested in and preoccupied with. And God allows the magi to consider a star. And follow the star. And then ask the right question. Where is this leading me? Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And again, like I said, some Bible teachers and scholars are downright embarrassed. That God used the object of their idolatry, a star, to bring them to King Jesus. But what they sometimes forget, who controls the stars? God controls the stars. Can God use things that you wouldn't elect to be your first choice of what would cause people to consider the claims of Christ? You know, I understand a lot of people study psychology in college so that they can figure out what's broken in their own life. I think that's why I got an earned degree in psychology. Well-meaning psychologists and therapists want to fix broken people and they themselves are hopelessly broken. And then they begin to understand something. Why are we broken? What is it inside of us and in our lives and in our circumstances that cause us to be broken? And people look at the broken circumstances of life and then they begin to think about the God who created them. And then the real problem of sin and the real solution as a savior. And so for many of us, we we find ourselves thinking about God and the claims of Christ in many remarkable ways. And I want to remind you of something. Matthew isn't in encouraging the reader to look to the stars. Matthew isn't inviting the reader to consider the claims of astrology or the the occult. It's not an invitation to study magic. Jesus is bringing liberation from those who are in bondage to superstition and false information. And when Jesus shows up, he becomes the source of saving revelation. And the real meaning, the real meaning of the star is that Jesus fulfills every expectation that the magi were hoping for. I want you to think about that for just a moment. The magi were following the star. Why? 
for the hope that that star held out for them, that the star was going to lead them not to a religion and not to a philosophy and not to a set of suppositions, but the star was going to lead them to a person, a person who would save them, a person who God had anointed and appointed to take care of the difficult and broken world in which we live in. They were looking for guidance, but it wouldn't come from the star, but the Lord who made the star, and this is going to upset the Jewish reader, because Gentiles are showing up at the Jewish Messiah's coming out party. And look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is upset. The, the, the magi have shaken him to the core. Herod is the king when Jesus was born. And by the way, most scholars believe that he was born Sometime around 7 BC, possibly 6, possibly 5. The reason why we know that is from secular sources we understand that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And so that would mean that Jesus had to have been born prior to that date. And Herod is a fascinating study in what is both what's best and worst in a human being. And, and if I were to make a movie of this king I would cast it as Danny DeVito. (laughs) And the reason why I would have Danny DeVito play Herod is because according to historians, Herod was probably about four foot four and angry all the time. (laughs) He was short in stature, but he was Big in building projects. As a matter of fact, some people credit Herod with an invention that many of you benefit from. When I was driving to church this morning, I started thinking about the road that I was on. And I started thinking about the driveways that I passed. And you know what? They were made out of cement. And you know who, according to most scholars, believe invented cement? They believe Herod invented cement. As a matter of fact, with this invention called cement, he was able to create a mechanism where you could build underground pillars in Caesarea by the sea. And he creates this magnificent seaport for his patron, Caesar Augustus. Herod was responsible for the renovation of the temple. Herod was the one who built the impregnable fortress called Masada, where the Jews held out against the Roman, Roman, regions, or Roman legions of, of the general Flavius. But even kind historians, people who admire Herod, say that he was cruel and vicious and unstable. One night, In a fit of rage, he murdered his wife and three of his own children. By the way, he married a woman named Miriam who was considered to be one of the most beautiful women in the world. When he killed her and her children, he felt so bad about it that he built a huge tower on the retaining wall 
in Jerusalem, which still stands to this day. He was so cruel to his family that Caesar Augustus made the comment that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. And at the end of his life, Herod gathered together 100 of the leading citizens of Jerusalem. He ordered them arrested and they were accused of crimes on trumped up charges because as he neared his death, it was important for him that the city go into a state of mourning. And so he ordered his guards to kill the citizens so that the city would be In mourning, even if it wasn't for him, they would be in mourning. Now, of course, Herod did die. And the guards just didn't have the resolve to carry out his final wishes. And he wasn't a Jew. He was one of the descendants of Esau. He was called an Idumean, which means Edomite. And remember the story in the Bible of Isaac. Isaac had a wife named Rebecca. And you'll remember that when Rebecca got pregnant, there were two children inside of her womb. Esau and Jacob. And you'll remember the Bible speaks of this war within her womb. The Lord described them as two nations. And they would vie for control. And Jacob come, is, is desperately trying to be the firstborn. But Esau beats him, well, to the door. And when Jacob is born, he's holding on to Esau's ankle. And Esau will become the father of the Edomites. And the son of Esau wants to be the king but Jacob's son is the rightful heir to God's throne now remember how Herod becomes king through the political and social and cultural machinations he is appointed king first of all by Julius Caesar and then he is incorporated by Mark Antony those of you who are familiar with the New Testament you'll remember a fortress called the Antonine Fortress it was built by Mark Antony of Mark Antony and Cleopatra fame he appoints Herod to be the king and Herod becomes the puppet king of Rome serving at the emperor pleasure and Herod knew that a Jewish heir would present a real serious threat and so did Rome and so in the in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament Esau and Jacob have this long representation of of the dynamic of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit Herod's descendant of Esau representing our flesh. Jesus as David's descendant, the spiritual man and the rightful heir. And Herod knows that he can be dethroned. And so those who make Jesus both Lord and King, they understand that Jesus is a threat. And that's probably something that you yourself have experienced either before you became a Christian or even right at this very moment. Because as you begin to talk about the right of Jesus to rule, it makes people feel really, really uncomfortable. I don't want to go to church. Why? Juno's going to talk about the Bible. Yeah. 
He's going to talk about the things that the Bible says, right? He's going to bring up stuff like the war between the flesh and the spirit and Jesus' right to rule. And that makes me feel uncomfortable. Why? Because I want to be the king of my life. I want to be in control of my destiny. I want to be the captain of my faith. Why was Jerusalem troubled in verse 3? Jerusalem is aware of the political implications of the Magi's presence. If the king of the Jews ruled in Jerusalem, Jerome is not going to be happy because you see in that ancient world, in that ancient world, when one king leaves and another king is put in place, it usually isn't a peaceful transition. There's usually this violent overthrow which is going to result in much blood being shed. And Rome has already demonstrated the power to destroy. And if you have two people claiming to be king and only one throne to occupy, that means someone's got to go. And so Herod has told the prophecy, the bread of life is going to be born in the town of bread. Herod is told the scriptures. Question. Is Herod fairly well-versed in the scripture? Yeah. Does he understand the Jewish traditions? Yes. Does he understand the stories of the prophets? Yes. Herod knows the word of God. He even believes the Bible, true or false. What do you think? I'm going to tell you that I think that he does believe it because if his reaction to King Jesus is the killing of the children, do you think he's killing all of the children in Bethlehem because he doesn't believe the prophecy? Or is he, is he not taking any chances? And you see, Herod teaches us that the human reaction to King Jesus is often personal rebellion. And if Jesus is the Lord, then we're, the, we're not. And if Jesus is king, then self-rule is over. And I want you to understand something in the story. Herod isn't just merely a villain. He represents everything that we are when we rebel against the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the Magi are what most of us were on the outside. Gentiles, aliens from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. So how are we like Herod? We're like Herod when we hold on to our right to rule. Because human beings, for the most part, are in rebellion way down deep. They want to be in control of their own life. Buried deep inside of us is this deep need to make our own decisions and live for ourselves and live for our selfishness. And Bruner writes, Herod lives and he lives in us, tempting us ever anew to hate and resist the real king, unquote. 
Luther said, for our flesh, that's our carnal nature, in itself is corrupt, inclined to evil, even after we accept and believe God's word, unquote. And that's the problem. Herod says, you say that he's king and the scriptures say that he's king, but I want to remain king. Mark Twain, of course, wrote the books Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And in his classic book, Huckleberry Finn, there is a a quote where Huckleberry Finn is having a conversation with the widow Douglas. And in the book, it says, after supper, she got out her book and learned me about Moses and the bulrushers. And I was in a sweat to find out all about him. But by and by, she let out that Moses had been dead a considerable long time, so then I didn't care no more about him because I don't take no stock in dead people, unquote. He's interested in the story of Moses, and then all of a sudden he discovers that Moses is dead, and so what does a dead person have to do with anything that's going on in my life? And what does a first century king who builds a temple and a seaport, what does that have to do with anything in my life? Well, don't let the fact that Herod's dead keep you from learning the lesson that he neglected. Herod wants to remain the king. Herod won't be able to find the king. And the reason why he won't be able to find the king is because he neglects the most important part of the journey. He rejects the king inside of his own wicked and evil heart. Herod and the Magi, both are sinners. Both are aliens from God. Both hear God's gracious word. Both have clear invitations to Jesus' birthday party. Even the religious leaders are invited. He comes into his own, but his own receives him not. In verse 4 it says, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired, Where was the Christ to be born? And in verse 5, so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least from the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes. These are the religious leaders. These are the professional clergy. These are the people who devote themselves to the study of scripture. They quote the prophecy of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Can you imagine? They're going through the scrolls. They're, They're leafing through their Bibles. They come to the book of Micah. Aha! There's a prophecy. 800 years old. That Israel's king, Israel's Messiah, are going to be born in Bethlehem. So how do we know Jesus is the king? He was was born where he's supposed to be born in fulfillment of the prophecy. 
We know there was a messianic expectation. Israel was looking for the Messiah. And by the way, in many parts of Israel, they still are. Some eight years ago when I flew into Israel, I was flying into Tel Aviv airport. There was, there was a gigantic banner and it said, the Messiah is coming. And right behind our plane was another pl plane carrying the Rabbi Lubavitch. And there were these Hasidim, these extremely uh, orthodox, observant Jews who were dancing and dancing. And they believed with all of their hearts that he was the coming Messiah, even to this very day. If you go to Israel, you'll see banners that says, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. They're philosophically, theologically willing to entertain the idea that a Messiah might be coming. But I want you to think about this just for a moment. Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem. What's six miles from here? Maybe 285? Hamden Boulevard? If we go five miles east, are we going to be in... No, we'd have... It's fairly close. Five miles away. Why won't they go five miles to see if their own scriptures are true? The religious leaders are unwilling to, to travel this short, short distance. The wise men have spent months, maybe even years, making the journey from the east. They've crossed a desert. They've invested money. They've expended a great deal of energy. They've been looking, 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 looking. And these religious people won't. Go the short distance to see whether or not this is true. And now, now think about it. If an entourage of kingmakers showed up on the doorstep and they said, hey, the Messiah is going to be born at Red Rocks Theater. And you would go, hey, let's all go over to the Red Rocks and see what's going on over there. But these people do Nothing. Isn't there a warning here? Knowing the scriptures is necessary and important, yet knowing the Bible isn't the same as actually believing the Bible or even doing what the Bible says. Craig Keener writes, these same religious leaders who are indifferent towards the child king will later participate in plotting his death. Matthew may be suggesting that the line between taking Jesus for granted and crucifying him is a very thin line. It says in verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them where the star appeared. Why secretly? Because Herod doesn't want to reveal his true motives. What are his true motives? To kill the child. In verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, quote, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring him back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Does he really want to worship the child? Don't you think what he really wants to do is destroy the child? Not everyone who claims to love the truth is really willing to face the truth. And so Herod fears the truth. And because he fears the truth, he's going to fight against the truth. And Herod uses the word. Read it for yourself in verse 8. 
Bring him back to me that I may come to worship him. Beware when people use holy words and substitute them for wicked plans. Oh, let me know. Tell me when you get that Bible. We can read it together. But you have no intention of really believing it or actually living it out in your life. Beware when people substitute holy words for wicked plans. And the news of Jesus produces alarm in verse 3, anxiety in verse 4, and private consultations in verse 7. But it will lead to opposition because Herod, Herod has come to his ability to rule through intrigue and murder and Roman power politics. And so Herod isn't reluctant to use Satan's tools to maintain power. Deception in verse 8. Depravity in verse 16. He will kill those children. And in verse 9, look what it says. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped them. Him is right. He didn't worship Mary, did he? He worshiped him. It doesn't say he worshiped Mary and Joseph. Joseph isn't even listed. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The witness of the star in verse 9 leads them to the very house where Jesus is residing. The witness leads to worship in verses 10 and 11. And then a warning in verse 12. And again, think of all the ways that God communicates to the wise men. He uses a star and then he'll use a dream. To the Jews, he will speak to the Jews in prophecy. And to the shepherds, he'll use angels. And when the wise men eventually come, remember, they're looking for a person, not a system, not a thought, not an interesting theory. Their search is for a person and not just any person, but a king. They seek Find the child and the wise men. Look what it says. Worship the child. They open their treasure. I love this word treasure. In the original language, it's the Greek word thesaurus. You know that word. We get the word thesaurus from it. If you have a dictionary and a thesaurus, you open up the thesaurus because it provides for you a treasury of words. They opened their treasures, gold, incense, myrrh, 
practical evidence of personal devotion. The gifts symbolize surrendered service to the lordship of the king. And the sacrifice of service will mark the end of their long journey. And it becomes a type and a picture of the Christian life. We experience, we find Jesus and we worship Jesus. And we experience his lordship. We surrender to him. Nothing less is possible. And the Jewish reader is again shocked. Gentiles are worshiping the Jewish king, not for what they can get. The Gentiles give costly gifts. Real worship is always sacrificial. Gold indicates his majesty. Frankincense mixed with oil was the spice that was used by priests in the fragrant display, if you will, or participation in prayer. The king is also a ministering priest. And myrrh is the spice and the substance of burial. It speaks of death. And see, when you're reading this, you may not understand exactly what you're reading. Let me put it in terms that you might understand. I have a new baby grandbaby. Born on Tuesday. Imagine there's a shower, there's a party thrown for the baby, and they start giving the baby what you would normally give babies. Here's a rattle, here's a stuffed toy, um, here's a gift certificate to Toys R Us. But imagine someone gives them a gift certificate from Olinger's, or a funeral home. Like McConaughey. Think of any funeral home that you can think of. Think, say, here's a gift certificate for when the baby dies. This, this is a gift certificate so that you can bury the baby when he dies. Hopefully you would go, what kind of weirdo gives a gift certificate for a funeral for a baby? Unless you understand that this baby is no ordinary baby. This baby is a king who is a priest. He's qualified to be the king. But the one qualification that sets him apart from every other baby is he's qualified to die for sin. Gold for royalty. Incense for purity. Myrrh for suffering. What is it about this baby? That's going to be different from every other baby and says in verse 12 then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod they departed for their own country another way like I said they studied two things stars and dreams and God used stars and dreams to lead them in one direction and then lead them in another direction God warned them to go a different way. And the Magi are, are, are a kind of encouragement to us. You know what's interesting to me? In Matthew's gospel, you're going to see two prominent Gentile groups. The Magi, who declare that he's the king of the Jews. And then another Gentile, a Roman procurator when asked to issue his death certificate, say, what do you want to put on his cross? And what do they write on his cross? This is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
the king Isn't that interesting? Gentiles say that he's king at his birth. Gentiles say that he's king in his death. Wearsby writes, Note, they went home by another way. He says, anyone who comes to Christ will go home another way and be a new creature. He quotes 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. But you can still give him gifts. Imagine if you give exactly what was given to him then. What I'd suggest is you begin with the death certificate. Begin with myrrh. It's a symbol of death. It's not an invitation to kill Jesus, but rather an invitation for you to deny yourself, to renounce that you're the Lord of your own life. And continue with incense, acknowledging that your life is impure and that his is pure. And then you can turn over to Jesus your gold. I'm not talking about money in the agape box. I'm talking about the gold that represents your right to rule your own life where you just simply acknowledge I'm going to give you what you desire what you require and that's rule of my life by the way it's the only gift he will require And admire. That's his royalty. His right to rule. You know the magi are an encouragement to us. If we seek him. We're going to find him. And God's grace can summon us. From the least likely places. And the passage also provides for us. Another lesson if we're willing to take it. In the passage, the Magi follow the light that has been given to them. And when they follow the light that's been given to them, they confirm the meaning and direction of their steps by the Bible, which is the word of God. And once they know the meaning and direction given by God's word, they obey God's word and then they allow God's word to lead them to the place in order to find what they're really looking for. Have you found what you're looking for? Hope, forgiveness, love, a future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know it seems odd having Christmas in October. But Lord, we know that for the Christian, we can celebrate the birth of Jesus each and every moment. Of each and every day. Lord, the birth of Jesus becomes the most important birthday. Sorry, Jonathan. And so, Lord, once again, we submit to you. We acknowledge you. We come to you. We lift Jesus high. We exalt him as the Lord. And we give him exactly what he deserves, our heart, 
our sin, our past, and our future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.